As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. The Last Jedi on the Left podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron, and uh, this episode is going to be like a fairy tale. And I am joined this week by Matthew. Oh. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we've we got in touch with each other. Um, you have a podcast with a former guest of mine as well, don't you? Yeah, so this is uh, where, where I, I came from. Uh, Mark put me in touch with you for it. Uh, so yeah, we're on the the Creative Psychopaths podcast, but yeah, we'll 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 do those bits at the end because we're we're not here to talk horror today. No, no, that's it. So today we've got a, a little bit of a different one, and um, so yeah, like I was just saying before we recorded, normally you know I'm not too uh, too fussy on on swearing and stuff like that, but we absolutely we couldn't really do this one. I, I mean, would would we be fine if we're just swearing and we're not like cancelled off the internet for some of the lines i think that come up in this one but uh but yeah it was uh we, we picked in bruges didn't we yeah i was given dealer's choice for so i i went with this one because i well i mean i don't think we're really going to be reviewing it so much are we because if we no, are, we're taking no. all jeopardy out of it because because i love this film <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and I'm uh, I'm right there with you on this one. So um, I've got the, the few quick notes. It was released over here, at least, on the 18th of April 2008. Uh, the number one over in the US was "Touch My Body" by Mariah Carey. It's not one that I'm a f- that got familiar to number with. One did it apparently, but wow. the number one over here was uh, "American Boy" by Estelle. With Kanye that's, West, that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that seems very of the of the era, I think. Um, and the the top of the US box office the weekend when it came out, or the weekend before it came out, which doesn't really make sense because it came out over here, but uh, it was Prom Night. If you remember that one, horror mm. film. This is bad, isn't it? I should know this one, given the, <laughs> yeah, given that I've got well, a horror podcast. It's, no, it's you, no you one said had... it. And all I could think of was that one from a couple of years ago that had like James Corden in it. That was yes, I do remember that. That probably more I've horrific actually. To be fair, <laughs> so yeah. No, I'm... no, no. I, I, I don't think I've seen the, the 2008 prom night. I just think it was very sort of of its of the time horror kind of film. Yeah, that 2008 would have been sort of the. I think it was a period where horror didn't really know what it wanted to do. Kinda. It would sort of progress through the, the torture porn era with your saws and your hostels and that sort of thing. And it was kind of gearing up to sort of that reboot mania that they had briefly. I mean, you know, they, yeah. they did Nightmare on Elm Street Friday the 13th. And it's, I guess it's probably trying to do the sort of Halloween type thing. Uh, I'd, I would guess went. so from that from that title as well. Yeah, yeah. the holiday type movies. So, I but mean, yeah, um, I can't so imagine it was I, any good. <laughs> no, I'd, I, probably not. Probably a one weekend wonder. But um, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll move on to the the film we're we're here to talk about. I guess. Um, actually, as we mentioned, comes out in two thousand and eight. Uh, do you have any? sort of memories of the first time you saw it? So this one, I didn't see it when it first came out. I remember seeing like the TV spots for it. Yeah. And I thought it actually looked quite naff. Uh, I don't remember them too much. So I'm going to just blame bad editing on the part of the, uh, the, the, uh, the trailer makers there. Uh, um, and then what happened was a couple of years later, I think it probably would have been 2010. So I think it was like the summer just before I was going to university and uh, hanging out with some friends. And one of the friends said it was really good. We should watch it. And then a couple of days later, another one of my friends had taken the recommendation on and watched it and told me, he's like, yeah, you, you've really got to watch it. So we watched it together, uh, immediately fell in love. I think the following day I got the DVD, told my dad to watch it. 
we watched it. I think we watched it together the following day anyway. Uh, and then just like everyone who who would listen, I was just espousing this movie. So it's kind of one of those films where like it feels like I kind of own it in a way because, you know, the like it, it wasn't a huge success off the bat and it it's like it got this big word of mouth following from people seeing it and sharing it. And, you know, it feels like I was a very small part of that. So it's, it's always been really kind of special for me in that regard because I feel like it's a film that, that I've been able to share with a lot of people. Yeah, I'm, I completely understand that because I think I come to this one uh, with a very similar sort of background to it. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't see it uh, in cinemas or anything and sort of, I can't, but I can't even remember how I must have heard it. It must have been through word of mouth, like you say, through somebody else. And then you say you sit down, you watch it, probably on the DVD or something like that. And yeah, just just completely blew me away at the time. And then you, all of a sudden, you just need to tell everybody and anybody that you meet, oh, you've got to see this. Yeah, it's kind of got like this cult following, but really quite broad now. You know, especially the way that Martin McDonough's career has gone since, you know, everyone seems to have, you know, seen three billboards, for example, and looked back and gone to in Bruges. And, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very famous film now. And rightly so. Yeah. It's an interesting one really, isn't it? Because after, so after in Bruges, he, he goes on and does, uh, does seven psychopaths, which I always felt like, was a good film, but because it wasn't in Bruges, it was always going to suffer slightly. Yeah, I thought with Seven Psychopaths, he it felt like a film that would have been made further down the line. Uh, it kind of felt like a filmmaker who'd sort of got a bit bored with the formula, so started trying to mess with it a bit. Uh, you know, the way that it... it went a bit metatextual and things towards the end of it. But I also think it's definitely worth a rewatch. It's much better than, than I remembered it uh, fairly recently. Okay. Um, it might be worth, I think it's available on like a couple of the streaming services as well out there. So it might be one to, to dive back in on. Um, it is interesting as well. Like you say that it's, it, it kind of becomes his film of like, I don't want to be known as, the Inverage guy, so I'm going to do something quite different here. Yeah, it was, I mean, complete change of setting, wasn't it? Change of I mean, some of the, the DNA spread over the neurotic Colin Farrell, mostly. Uh, but, you yeah. know, the location couldn't be more different, could it? And uh, the, the whole you know, layout of the film with it being cut up into these sort of quasi chapters, but not really. And, you know, and then like we said, that whole big meta textual ending, it's a, a world away from in Bruges, which is basically a, a straight up and down black comedy drama, isn't it? There's no yeah, yeah. mucking about with it. And it's something that he's not done since either, you know, three billboards and, and Banshees of Inner Sharing, both straight, up and down dramas uh, with that you know, black comedy running through them. Yeah, it's it's funny because, like I say, we, we moves on to to three billboards, and then that's definitely gets a different kind of attention because all of a sudden it's it's mentioned in a lot of the like award season films and stuff like that. I know he did; I think he did quite well at the Baftas with it, and and yeah, uh, he got a couple of uh, performing Oscars, didn't he? I think Francis yeah. McDormand and Sam Rockwell both both got them. Yeah, so it kind of moves into that. Whereas, like you say, it's still it, it feels a lot more straight, uh, albeit it's still got his very you know dark humorous elements in there. And then from there moves on to to Banshees, which is like a similar sort of vein for me, but then brings it all full circle with like effectively the same two leads, you know, from from in Bruges. Yeah, it kind of pictures uh, Banshees sort of between. In Bruges and three billboards for me because it's like it's got that, like you say, the same leads and 
but it's got that that tone of it being more of a drama. Uh, but I think the the comedy in it plays a bit stronger for me in Banshees than it does in Three Billboards. Yeah, I mean we're, we're, we're quibbling because I think like looking at I think looking at my letterbox, every single one of his films has been five stars for me. So I'm, uh, any sort of uh, quibble about quality is is minor. You've got me wondering now where I'm at because I'm probably not too far behind on each one. I think. They're all in the four and a half, five, I think, in, in that range. So, yeah. But, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of, I guess, round back to uh, to In Bruges, like I say, the one we've, we've kind of brought up today. Um, what is the, uh, I guess, what are your, like, favourite moments in there? What are your favourite particular scenes? I mean, it's, I think, in terms of particular scenes, it's kind of hard to to say really isn't it because it's mostly all scenes of just two blocks talking to each other it, a lot of it does feel like almost one you know one or two particular long scenes in particular just just you know it feels because it's one night effectively you know the whole film takes place over about three days so yeah i think the if i was going to, to pick one which i think is well, I wouldn't say watch it if you've never seen it to try and turn someone onto watching the full thing because it's you, you need to know the context of the scene for it to really work. But when uh, Colin Farrell is on the bench and he, he tries to commit suicide yeah. before being stopped, I think that's that's so it's, it's powerful, but also one of the funniest scenes in the film as well. Yeah, definitely, it does bring everything to a head and but then you well you're laughing at the ridiculousness of the moment aren't you yeah i mean just the the the, the fact that he's you know he's, he's about to commit suicide and then also about to be murdered at the same time <laughs> but because he's about to commit suicide that stops the murder and it's you know then they're arguing about it, and he was like, "Well, you're going to shoot yourself." And he's, "Well, I'm allowed to, you know." That <laughs> the fact that you can turn something which is just so bleak and and upsetting into something that that you know brings out a belly laugh, it's it's masterful. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I feel like as well this film. Maybe I'm not quite sure on my timeline on this, so I might be off. But I feel like it really brought Colin Farrell back into like, um, I guess, back into like the forefront, but for a good reason, for the forefront of people's minds in particular. Because yeah. obviously he has. I know exactly where you're coming from. I feel the same way. Um, I would reckon that when I saw this, I probably knew Colin Farrell for like Daredevil, which is. Probably not something he'd want to uh, to be remembered for. But I mean, since this has come out, he's... I mean, frankly, how he's not been at least Oscar-nominated more times is, is ridiculous. I think thinking his work with Yorgos Lanthimos and uh, After Yang was another really good one. That yeah. You just think, how is he not celebrated more as a, as a performer? Because he... He really has a great touch to him. Yeah, that's definitely it. So like you say, because kind of before this, I guess, I mean, I, I always quite like Phone Booth, to be fair. Um, but but you were you were sort of struggling a little bit for any prestigious roles that he'd done, I think. And he obviously had his well-publicized struggles up to this point. Um, so then, like you say, this kind of brings him back into the fore. And like you say, he, he works with Yorgos after this. And he has, uh, there's like the lobster and... Um, Killing, killing of a sacred deer, deer which is yeah, yeah, another one of my my, my favourites as well, which has just been been great. Uh, and well, then the, yeah, the connection, um, of course, with the uh, Martin McDonough there of Barry Keown. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I've just got his IMDb up, and yeah, there was precious little to sink your teeth into uh, prior to In Bruges. Uh, it had the lead role in a couple of misfires with Alexander and, and Miami Vice and uh, yes, of course. Yeah. SWAT daredevil. Like we said, 
Uh, and then sort of, uh, yeah, other than that sort of bit parts. So it's a film that, that very much put him on the map. And I would probably say the same for, for Brendan Gleeson too, because uh, again, he'd been around as a sort of a, you know, character actor, bit parts here and there. But I think this and and probably that his role in the Harry Potter film really put him as a, you know, as a name that, as, you know, the household name, one that everyone yeah, definitely. at least recognises. That's it, because I think I probably no, I probably did recognise him, like say going into this from from the Harry Potter films as well. But other than that, he was always going to be like the guy from Twenty Eight Days Later. You know the the the, the um, friend wasn't he in that? Uh, I, well, to be honest, I'm thinking that I remember him from a film we we talked about on on the podcast, uh, Lake Placid. Oh, of course. Looking back, just going, if they were the roles he was getting before this, thank, thank God it came around because that film, yeah, it's a struggle. Um, well, I'm going to... Side note on Lake Placid, I, I did see that probably not long after it came out, I reckon, and I quite enjoyed it at the time, but I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to be watching it at the time, so that probably should tell you everything you need to know, I guess. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, we, we yeah we said that it we kind of agreed it didn't hold up, but it does That's have right. a, it I, does have some charm to it. And I'm probably not going to rewatch it to uh, <laughs> to to double check on that one. So, but um, yeah, you, you are probably right about those two. And then obviously we've got the uh, I guess the third lead in the film who, who doesn't show up until really the last act, um, and that's uh, Ray Fiennes. Yeah, so I think he's, he's a name with a bit more, uh, I'd say, cash to him. He, he was yeah, definitely, yeah. More of a, uh, I think he was seen more as a serious actor, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, because he's coming off like, he's done the things like the, the English Patient and stuff like that, hadn't he, by this point? Yeah, so. Schindler's List as well. So I think when you've when you've done Schindler's List, you've kind of got a, you've kind of got a rep, haven't you, there? Especially for the character he plays in Schindler's List. Yeah, yeah, real. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's one of the few characters in film where you would say that calling him a Nazi is not one of the worst things about him, isn't he? <laughs> he really is one well, of the worst true, characters yeah. in well in in the history of life, not just in in cinema. Yeah, and you know it's bad when uh, when Harry in 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 Bruges is possibly not even like. Top five of the worst <laughs> yeah, he's played. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess the only other thing to sort of touch on a little bit with uh, with Martin McDonough is I know because obviously he's uh, somebody who's done a lot of like stage work as well. Now, personally, I'm not. I I, don't, I have been to theatre and seen the odd thing here and there, but I'm not much of one for the stage. Partly down to like. I don't live anywhere near London or anywhere like that. So it's it's a little bit more difficult to get to these places, I think, as well. But I don't know if you've had any experience of those. No, I haven't for, for more or less the same reason, is that, uh, again, I, I'm, I live a long way from London. And yeah. for, for anyone who, who's not in the UK, it's provincial theatre is often very good but it's very badly advertised. And I also think it's generally very expensive unless you get quite lucky. And it's, it is hard to be a theatre person outside of London, really. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree on that. You've, you've put that better than I could, I think. Oh. I was So anybody who's heard the uh, Scarface episode that I put out uh, earlier on in this sort of run, it basically devolved into me and my friend endlessly quoting it at each other because that's what you do with Scarface. And I've tried very hard not to make this exactly the same podcast because <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's what this one could have turned into. At least between me and my friends it became that for a long time. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking this when when watching the film that the I mean the screenplay is incredible, glows without saying, but it's not 
to me, uh, a film of these your know, short little snappy quotes. Because I was watching it just going like these, you know, these, these passages of dialogue, you know, they're extremely memorable, but at the same time, there's like three lines of memorable dialogue rather than, uh, you know, a quick sentence or, you know, like you're thinking like Mean Girls and, and Anchorman was sort of the, right, the quote machines you, yeah. from, the, from that sort of time. I guess maybe, maybe it is, uh, something that I think is particularly a strength of the script then. So for, for example, you know, if you, if you say to somebody about like, oh, they weren't really that shit, but you weren't that great either. A bit like Tottenham, you know, almost anybody who's seen the film can sort of remember yeah. that entire passage effectively. I, you can only see I, I a bit of there's, it. There's the odd line, you know, like if you, uh, I've never heard anyone since this film mentioned alcoves without asking if you use this word. And, but like there's, I think the, the, the whole sequence where they're talking about, uh, you know, if they, they've killed bad people, if they regret any that they've killed and, you know, you say, Oh, I, I remember uh, killing one guy who was just trying to protect his brother. And then, it devolves from a guy protecting his brother into a lollipop man knowing karate. And <laughs> no, that's <laughs> just an, an incredible section. I, yeah, I could, could probably quote it verbatim, but like it's two or three minutes of dialogue and it's all of it is just, just really, wonderful. really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I'd got a few sort of odd quotes that I, I, you know, you tend to roll out every now and then. Um, you're an inanimate fucking object. Yeah, that's actually become uh, a bit of an argument killer in our house. Is that one? Uh, if ever, oh, if ever, voice what a great raised, idea. Yeah, uh, and and you want to to calm things down, just just shout you're an inanimate fucking object at, at the other party. Just and, completely uh, diffuses just, just the take situation. Take some of the sting out of it. Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. Um, what else have I got? Uh, that's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. <laughs> yeah. And and I don't think I've ever heard a Canadian talk without sort of turning to somebody near me and going, they didn't kill John Lennon. <laughs> yeah, and the, the bit later where it's, you, you, you hate the Canadian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't hate any Canadians, but... Um, re- obviously retract that bit about my cunt fucking kids. <laughs> it's just another uh, great line. Yeah. <sighs> Which obviously, like you say, it going, goes to that whole bigger speech about like, you know, you're a cunt, you've always been a cunt, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that, that was another one. Um, and then another one that again, has, it's become a sort of, go-to line between me and my friends a little bit of like when you've kind of just had enough of whatever's going on and you're just about to leave, you just say, ah, two manky hookers and a racist dwarf. I'm calling it a night. <laughs> I might start trying that now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good one to good one to wheel out. Um, and the only other one I think I've really got is, and, and this is because I, I think I'd forgotten it was a line from this film or a part of this film at one point. But my friend... Um, just wheeled it out at one point in a mid conversation. Um, and that was that uh, Belgium's only famous for two things, chocolate and child abuse. And they only invaded the chocolate so they could get to the kids. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very good. I think the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the one that I use a lot is the, uh, it's a fairy tale fucking village. How <laughs> yeah. could that not be anyone's fucking thing? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, that kind of leads into uh, to, to the question of: Have you actually ever been to Bruges? I haven't. No, it's no, it, it's quite a, a, a tricky one because the going for a start it doesn't have an airport because it's uh, a fairy tale village. But also, yeah. it's they, they they struggle for tourism, uh, just in the sense that there's too much of it. So they, they put a lot of things in place to, to prevent tourism uh, right, in that okay. sort of scale. 
so it's it's a hard one to get to, but it's like I'll I'll, I'll definitely do it before too long. Probably try and yeah. convince the other half to do it next Christmas, maybe. I think that's it. I think it's been the same for me. It's always been one of them. I need to get there. I need to go and see it. But also, my other half knows what I'm like. And is she going to be happy with just two or three days of me endlessly quoting this film at her? Yeah, I mean, we've we, we've uh, done... A, I mean, we, we go on quite a few... Very lucky to go on quite a few holidays. And uh, we do short city breaks a lot. And the good thing about European city breaks is that chances are you can find a film that's been filmed there, you know, uh, and and recognize it pretty well. So we, we do have a bit of a history with that. The, the most excited she's ever been was when we were in Barcelona and uh, she saw some of the filming locations for Evanescence's My Immortal video. Ah, okay. Uh, which... Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't remember the video, but she assures no, me. No, I was going to say I know the song, but I, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the video to. Uh, I was. To I was quite pleased uh, that when we were in uh, Copenhagen, we were able to scout out the uh, scene where they shot the finale of another round. Ah, so yes, was, yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that says where we are culturally, but uh, <laughs> no, she, she's much more intelligent than me. Yeah, I, I mean, I like I say, I've, I've just told you that I'd be wandering around uh, Bruges asking if they were shooting dwarfs or something like that. So I, I'd be no better. Um, but yeah, that, so I mean, that kind of, we, we both obviously consider this to be a five-star film. Uh, but yes, I feel like, yeah, absolutely. I feel like with mentioning obviously the other, the other uh, cities and stuff around Europe that you've been to in particular, that's going to round us quite nicely into our top fives for this episode. Kind of put our heads together a little bit on this one. And I think we sort of came up with the idea of uh, European travel films. Uh, ooh, I, I want just more of holiday films because I do have... Okay. I do have some American ones in there. Oh, well, I'll, I'll let you off for that then. But uh, yeah, well, okay, that's that's fine. We'll, um, I don't know if you want to kick us off with your, your number five then. So do, do these want to be to be in a, a top five order? Because, um, I mean, it's yes, but like no, I, I'm not going to hold you to it. I've got them in right. a top five order, but I don't necessarily think that number one is the best one that I've got on there. It's just I would like to to preface this then with my my top five. So, and this is actually six to two because in Bruges would be my number one for it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the other thing that's worth mentioning as well. Right, so number five, then I'm going to to kick us off with the Italian job, uh, the original, not the remake. Uh, that's not the American <laughs> film in question. Yeah, uh, uh, it's yeah. I mean, for for <clears throat> the the edifice of it is that it is this uh, highest movie set on the continent, which it obviously is. But it, if you've ever been on a holiday with a large group of people. It is, it is exactly like the Italian job, you know. There's, there's months of planning in advance uh, that always falls on the shoulders of one person. You know, you, you can't go without an, an excuse to go. Uh, you, you get there and something inevitably goes disastrously wrong on the way. And the only difference I would say is that, you know, generally the person organising it is is the most bookish, meek one of the group rather than, you know, Michael Caine. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's a really good film just when you break it down like that. And also just as uh, as a film, it, it still stands up now. It's really great. Yeah, um, funny one, actually. I, I, uh, I, I've seen it a long time ago now, um, but it was one of them that I came up in conversation, I can't remember how, the other week uh, with, with my wife. And I sort of said, like, have you ever, have you ever, do you know what happens at the end of this film? I mean, spoilers for this, uh, like, 50-year-old film or whatever now. But um, we sort of said, like, you know, they, they effectively, like, they're going over these cliffs and stuff, and the bus that they're on ends up teetering over the edge of a cliff. And, like, you know, it just ends with, with Michael Caine saying... I've got a great idea and that's it. And it's like, it was, it was doing what the Sopranos did 
40 years before The Sopranos did it or whatever. So, uh, and, and then I've managed to find it on YouTube and show it. So it, it was one that actually, yeah, came up in conversation the other day. And still one of them that it's kind of baffling how they got away with that, really. That Well, I know that in uh, in the America, say a bit earlier than that, I'd say more of a 50s thing, that they were very... Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure where the mandate came from, but they were very strict about you're not allowed to benefit from crime in movies. So if you see things like right. the, the Rat Pack, Ocean's Eleven, uh, like they lose all the loot at the end. He like he like gets buried or cremated or something. So there would always be they'd pull off the score and then they'd have to find some way of losing it all. Uh, because that, obviously they, they weren't allowed to show that crime pays. Was that the um, is it Hayes Code or something like that? It's yeah, something like that. I mean, the Comics Code was another that that they all put in, and they all followed these they very restrictive quote, and frankly boring rules. Yeah, they're like quote unquote moral guidelines, aren't they? Yeah, uh, but I mean, saying it's it's weird to see that an English film would have followed those same rules because I think we have more of a I think we, we like a rogue a bit more uh, yeah yeah and also we're, we're from a country where we see very regularly that crime pays not I mean not that sort of crime more you know enormous uh, <laughs> banking political <laughs> crime that uh, just oh. just happens all the time and we're used to it yeah I knew I was going to like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my number five is uh, I got American Werewolf in London. Oh, yes. Yes, a great shout. Yeah, two two uh, backpackers coming into... I kind of love the start of this film because they, they go into that pub and you like the, the record scratch and like a fella is lining up his dart that all of a sudden just flies off the board or whatever and... Uh, it's we've all done it at least like it's a rite of passage almost to walk into a pub in an area that you're not as familiar with in this country and and that exact scenario plays out pretty much but um obviously yeah then then they're out on the moors and uh, one of them gets attacked well they both get attacked to be fair and uh, chaos ensues but um but yeah it's uh, that was another one that I think I came to it kind of later on in life it wasn't one that I watched too young at least, but uh, I think it's an yeah, absolutely I brilliant film. I only watched it for the first time a couple of years ago as well, but you know, fairly recently. And yeah, it is, uh, it, it is brilliant. Uh, and, and in that, that pub scene uh, you were talking about, it, it's a, a very early role for Rick Mail as well. Ah, yes, of course. I forget about that. I just uh, had to check that on IMDb because I remember there was someone very famous in it, but I couldn't, couldn't remember who it was. <laughs> Uh, but yes. yeah, it's it really captures that sort of. I mean, the the people in in those sort of villages are much friendlier than that. Uh, but when you walk <laughs> into a place, they do all stop and look at you because they are small communities where everyone knows everyone, and you know they, they are generally welcoming to visitors. But they yeah, are also it. surprised at anyone non-locals there. <laughs> That's it, yeah. That's that's a good point. To be fair, that although there is that surprise, I've never I've never been in a place as unwelcoming as that. But it's uh, and and then it also moves in into London, doesn't it as well? And I think it shows a side of London we don't get to see all that often in film, too, doesn't it? That's true. Yeah, uh, when it like I say it introduces uh, Jenny Agatha as the as the nurse, doesn't it? Um, it's also got yeah like the best. Well, one of the best. Shout out to the howling, but one of the one of the best uh, transformation scenes of a werewolf. Well, on on the, our podcast, we we so we ask people horror related questions for uh, you know whenever we have a guest on. And one of the questions we always ask is what the the best effects are for a, for a horror film. And American Werewolf in London and the Thing are the ones that come up uh, more than any other. So we, we dub, yeah. we've dubbed those the, the two correct answers and <laughs> anything else is just free choice behind that. Hard to argue, I think, with those two particularly. Um, we'll, we'll move on to your number four. 
Uh, right, so I'm going... Uh, this is one of my, my American ones. Uh, another film from fairly recently, actually. And I'm picking Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Okay, interesting one. Yeah, it's a film that uh, I... I think I first heard about it. Uh, I think I was aware of it, but I first heard it in any sort of critical appraisal from Mark Kermod. I think he was putting it in one of his worst films of the year. <laughs> and I sort of didn't pay any heed. And then I think towards the back end of, I think it was 2020, I think it was one of the pandemic films that they just lumped on streaming. It was in Empire Magazine and they were breaking down Edgar's song with the seagulls and I just thought this sounds quite weird and fun and I gave it a watch and for basically an hour and a half me and the other half just completely just lost ourselves for for so long it's one of the comedies I've enjoyed most in years it's just stupid it's wacky and I think it follows uh, quite a great but struggling tradition where sort of comic uh, sort of get a big hit with uh, more of a, a popular uh, character, easier, easier, a more accessible uh, film. And then once you've had that success, go and do something a bit crazier. So I'm thinking you're Mike Myers going from Wayne's World to Austin Powers. And then seeing uh, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo going from Bridesmaids to this, it just made me feel that that tradition's alive and well. Okay, that's uh, it's an interesting one. So I I remember it did come out. Like I say, like you said, in the in the pandemic, I believe, because I sort of remember it coming up, and then as happened to like a lot of those films that kind of happened at the pandemic, it was like flavor of the month for well, uh, not even a month, you know, a couple of weeks maybe, and then kind of had rotated out and everybody was focused on everything else. And I kind of missed it in that moment and then never really came back around to it, but I might have to now. Yeah, and the, it's, you know, the, the Edgar's song with the, with the seagulls, like I, I still just slip it into a, a Spotify playlist when we're, when we're on a drive or something. And every time it gets a reaction from from us both in the car, it's, it's it's genuinely one of my favourite songs ever committed to film as well. Yeah, I mean, okay. there, there were two films that came out with Jamie Dornan singing about his feelings as a, a climax. Well, not a climactic scene, but for for maximum emotional resonance, it was like Barb and Star and Belfast, and, and the wrong one got nominated for an Oscar. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh Fair enough. Like I say, I, I haven't got too much uh, too much input on that one. I've not seen it, and like I say, it was kind of one I think I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about a little bit. But um, but yeah, I'll, I'll have to try that one down. Um, so my my number four again, and this is kind of to the point of like, realistically, this should be my number one because it's the best film I've got on my list. But also, the, the travel in it isn't as pivotal to the plot, maybe. Um, I've got The Godfather. Um, okay. And that's yes. in particular for the bit where uh, Michael is, is sent away to, to, to the old country, to uh, to Sicily, where he lives and falls in love. And it all ends in tragedy. But you have these kind of big sweeping vistas of, of Sicily. And it, it kind of really does, it kind of makes you want to go to Sicily in a weird way. Because, you know, it's all about mafia and stuff like that but um but yeah uh it was just one of those kind of it has got uh, somebody traveling to europe in particular like i say so we're doing that travel moment and uh i thought I, I have to include it i have to try and like shoehorn it in somehow so yeah i think that's exactly how i i would describe it as well it's it just makes Sicily so inviting, doesn't it? It's always sunny. It's always framed in those those lovely soft colours, and it's just so beautiful. And I think that there's quite a few scenes where you just see old blokes sat around eating, and you're just like, "Oh yeah, that's that's the life in it." That <laughs> that's it. Yeah, organised so, crime. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, but like you say, it's always those sort of soft colours. It's beautifully shot. You've got. 
uh, Ennio Morricone's love theme playing in the background as well. So yeah, that's how Sicily, like even though that's like set in the fifties or whatever, that's how Sicily still looks to, to me to this day in my eye, in my mind. But uh, probably not. So uh, move on to your your number three then. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually going for another very new one. Uh, okay. One from late last year, in fact, and it is After Sun. Ah. So this one this one did get quite a bit of awards buzz uh, around it and, and richly deserved uh, because the film is tragic but also captures this uh, very beautiful moment in, in life, uh, which really just makes the tragedy so much worse. Uh, without being you know, uh, too in your face with what it is as well. It, there's nothing, there's nothing explicit shown or anything like that. It's, it's all uh, just suggested, but very obviously. So you know what's, what's happened. Uh, but it, I mean, it's about a father and a daughter uh, going on holiday to, I believe it's one of the Greek islands. And it, it, frames the film from both of their perspectives, depend, you know, depending on the scene. And when it's from the uh, little girl's perspective, uh, who, I've forgotten her name, but she, she puts out a really, really incredible performance. And it, one of the, the best performances I've ever seen by a child actor. Uh, it, it really reminds you of those childhood holidays that you would have, uh, where... You know, your parents were off doing something or you know, whoever you were with was doing something. And then you know, they just chuck you a few pounds and you'd run off to a video arcade, just completely ignoring your surroundings and <laughs> you know, what you were actually there for and uh, make friends with whoever was about. And yeah, there's this really you know, beautiful father-daughter story that runs through it and then gets very sad towards the end, but just a, a lovely film. Yeah. Um, you've made me sit here and realize that really my, my whole list feels like a sham now because I absolutely should have had this film on there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I kind of, I don't think I did a podcast on it cause I don't think I'd started the podcast just yet, but, um, this was my film of the year for last year. Um, I it, it completely blew me away when I watched it. I I, sat, I think I sat there for like a good five minutes after the even after the credits had finished rolling on the the the, the DVD or the Blu-ray or whatever I'd got, and and just was still kind of sat there in silence because it kind of completely took me over. I found the whole thing like like you say because it kind of uh, it's set like um, early two thousands effectively and. The little girl, uh, Sophie, is like she was. She's of like roughly the same age as I would have been around that time as well. So, it very much spoke like you mentioned about like it spoke to me about like those family holidays and stuff that you've been on and where you're just running around and you're just hanging around the pool table all day because you're going to play pool and stuff like that. So, or jumping in and out of the swimming pool and, and things. So yeah, and then also just the whole other side of it just really kind of uh, struck me, should I say. But yeah, it, it, the whole film, I think, was it's absolutely beautiful, incredible film, and I 100% agree with you. Yeah, if it, it's um, one of those where if you uh, you are lucky enough to still have your parents with you, yeah, it, it just makes you want to just give them a hug as soon as you see them next. And it's, yeah, it, it really speaks to, to that bond that, uh, that you have. Definitely, yeah. Um, I've got no idea how I'm going to segue into my uh, number three now. Because <laughs> number three, yeah, I threw a depressing one in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like, like I say, I've gone from like an incredibly beautiful film to uh, Midsummer, uh, which, of course, we, we we did an episode about this on our, our podcast as well. Yeah, which uh, which I mean, I think is is beautiful in its own way, but but is. Uh, it's beautiful, particularly in the only only in the way that Ariasta could ever dream up, I imagine. Um, 
So yeah, it, that's one that starts off with something really horrific in that a girl's sort of family end up dying um, effectively and her boyfriend's ill-advised idea is, oh, let's just go to Sweden to take your mind off it. Um, and things go downhill from there even. So uh, so yeah, uh, I, I don't want to, I guess I don't want to spoil it too much, but if anybody's seen Hereditary or... To a lesser extent, Bo is afraid, I guess, is his latest one. Um, they kind of should know what they're letting themselves in for with this one. Yeah, I mean, what you said about After Sun is, is what I'm going to say about Hereditary because my list feels like a... Sorry, Hereditary, Midsummer, Because uh, my list feels like a sham now because that is <laughs> another one that, that that should have been on my list. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skirt around and say, and I stuck to holidays and, and technically they're going for university thesis work aren't they so it's, it's a working trip that's yeah that's how i'm getting around it <laughs> okay that's fair then yeah not that but no it's yeah a unbelievable film uh again what one of the best horrors of the decade uh if not longer it's yeah, like uh, it, it does still feel a little bit weird calling it a horror, though, as well at the same time because it is that that breakup movie, uh, which is just taken to some weird dark places. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting, and and it feels like it, for a while you kind of think it's going to go one way, and it it does divert and it's, uh, but it definitely cemented after, because I really liked Hereditary as well. And then after this, it kind of cemented Ari Aster as like a appointment viewing director for me as well. Yeah. Uh, although Boys Afraid didn't get uh, much of a release uh, around where I was. So I've still not seen that and I'm very mad about it. No, I think I've ended up getting it on the, um, the PVOD type thing. Yeah, it's the, the. I mean, the the cinema closest to me is very small, so we we don't get we get quite a bit of, of decent stuff, but we we have to travel further afield, and even those cinemas didn't have many showings, so it was it was one that really annoyed me this year. Was that? Yes, I feel you again. Like we said before about the the theatre thing, I feel your pain on this one. I'm I'm with you there. Yeah. Um. So that moves us on to your number two. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm also going to go for a depressing trip that ends with uh, a string of dead bodies in its wake. Uh, but this one is uh, more local to, to me because uh, I'm going with sightseers. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Though there's, uh, you know, there's a, a thing that uh, in this, this country where, uh, in probably other countries too, where people get a little bit sniffy about holidaying in your own country uh, or at least it feels that way pretty much everybody i know exclusively holidayed in their own country for most of their lives uh, you know I, I remember in the pandemic there was all that talk of staycations but then they would just travel to the other side of the country and have a <laughs> villa and you're know, in, in cornwall or something and yeah, I was like, that's just a holiday. That's all we had when we were kids. We, we'd we'd drive four hours and then get a caravan somewhere, and, and they were great. They were they were amazing, and the, there is, you know, something that we we don't consider enough is that you know, where you are from, wherever you are, that is an exotic destination for people who aren't from there, and it's an exciting place to go. And I think sightseers does a really good job of that, but also frames it from that British perspective where it all feels a bit dull and a bit silly. Uh, so, it, you know, it's these, it's mostly at, you're around the Peak District and the Lake District, which is beautiful, beautiful part of the world. But it's all filmed sort of to be quite drab and the excitement to had is from murdering people. <laughs> it's just really funny in that regard. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, waterproof coat being worn, isn't there? That kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I've never. I 
I, I I got very close to planning a trip to go and see the pencil museum after seeing this film as well. We we were we we were within walking distance from it a few weeks ago, uh, and, and didn't do it to, to our <sighs> shame. Well, you know, always leaves it on the list for next time, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, to, Keswick's a, a lovely town where it is, so it's yeah, I'd be, be more than happy to go back. Yeah, it's it's a funny one. So I kind of, uh, I, where we're sitting now, we're, we're like a couple of weeks out from, I, I went to see Meg 2, The Trench, um, which it's not that great. Um, but obviously the director of that was, was Ben Wheatley as well. So I kind of was going over his films again. And I still think this is, for me, a top two or three film from Ben Wheatley, I think. I, I would go along with that, definitely. Yeah, so, he's yeah. a, a filmmaker who, like you said about Ari Aster, is appointment viewing for me, um, except Meg 2, The Trench, because I haven't seen Meg 1. <laughs> so it's, uh, although maybe that, that might stand me in uh, in good favour. i got to be honest, it's, it's not that much of a complex uh, plot that you'd be struggling, I think. Yeah, I think the trailer brought me up to speed pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it does... Uh, it does disappoint me a little bit. I'm just trying to work out the the order of release. I can't remember if In the Earth came out after Rebecca. Uh, I think it might have. They, they were both pretty close to pandemic films, weren't they? They, they so. were, yeah. Uh, but In the Earth is is properly brilliant, and Rebecca was not. So I, I don't know if uh, Ben Wheatley's begun the, the makings of a bit of a sliding quality, but I, I hope that's not the case. I don't know. I guess, um, particularly with like Rebecca and, and Meg too, because I thought Rebecca was fine, but it, you obviously it's always going to draw comparisons to the Hitchcock film, which is just miles better. So it was kind of an odd one, but I feel like for both of those, they're just a little bit of him doing it for the money, maybe. Well, I, I remember when... Uh when he, he got named as a director for the Meg 2 and your know, people were, were shocked and asked him and, and he, he did just turn around and go, well, I get to work with Jason Statham in a massive shark film. He thought, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's a bit of a silly idea that I think would be appealing to yeah. someone just wanting to do something a bit daft. Yeah. True. Um, yes. But maybe he's like, he's doing that. He's doing those films so that he can also afford to make In the Earth still. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he certainly doesn't make big budget hits, does he? So I think that that uh, that money's got to come in it. from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess I'll use... So this is going to be my segue on this one. So uh, Rebecca, which we mentioned, had... Um, Persona non grata now effectively Army Hammer, but my number two had also got Army Hammer in it, and that is Call Me by Your Name. Yeah, this is one that that didn't really do it for me. I was a bit uh, cold to it compared to everyone else. So I'll be honest uh, when you say that you're not alone uh, in telling me that because uh, sort of frequent guest of the podcast that I've had on uh, Joe, he's sort of my, one of my go to sort of film friends effectively as well and he also was not huge on this one um i don't know if it was just maybe because i do remember catching it in the cinema um and i don't know if it was just maybe that it caught me just at the right moment and maybe if i did view it again then i might not view it quite as favorably i'm not sure but something just really struck a chord with me and i really kind of enjoyed it i was really taken with it um and I think that, you know, it has that kind of American coming to Italy again, which I feel like has been like half of my films. But, um, but yeah, it's got that, uh, it almost makes you, if, if you weren't like, those two were kind of falling in love, but I was almost falling in love with their surroundings and everything that was going on with that. So I thought that it showed off sort of that kind of semi-rural Italian kind of thing. Like like I say, with The Godfather in effect, but like it did it over the whole film that it was just showing that off quite well. Um, so yeah, that was... Yeah, I mean, that... it, it definitely is is gorgeous to look at, for sure. Uh, you know, I think you know, what probably comes down to is that I did see it after the whole Army Hammer cannibal 
revelation. So maybe you know that might have uh, uh, have done it for me. But yeah, it might yeah, make it far uh, more comfortable viewing as well now. Well, I mean that was the uh, the, the joke that I kept making when when Death on the Nile came out, but nobody really was up to speed on the Army Hammer stuff, so it just kept falling flat. So it's like, of course he's the killer. He's just trying to get more food. <laughs> yeah it does make you uh yeah very very much want to to spend spend a holiday in italy and and it is i think my, my problem my problem part of it is that i think the age difference was just a bit much as well uh where i felt that the the relationship was not quite as wholesome as it should have been if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. And again, I think, although no one's accusing uh, Army Hammer of for that particular, you know, uh, issue as such, but the whole thing does make it just feel a little bit more uncomfortable when you know yeah, what you the, know now. The uh, the same thing that I had with, with Licorice Pizza, I would say, is that I'm looking at it going, this is, you know, this is all very sweet, very nice, but I, there's just something about it that I just can't kick it out of my head when I'd really like to. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that kind of leads us on to your your number one. Yeah, so, I mean, if we're talking uh, horrible, uh, unwanted and really uncalled for scenes of any nature in a film, uh, my top holiday movie is Evil Dead 2. <laughs> okay yeah yeah because it's it is one of the greatest horror films of all time uh i would also say it's probably also one of the greatest comedy films of all time it's brutal it's bloody it's funny it's scary like i would maybe go so far as to call it the perfect film i uh I am probably not going to argue with you on any of those things. It's, uh, it, like I say, it's incredibly sort of brutal and, and gory at times, thinking of like, you know, shower of blood and stuff like that. But it's also incredibly funny, like a man fighting with his own hand. Um, and also one of the, the best things about it, which is an odd uh, superlative, I'll, I'll admit, but the fact that it's under 90 minutes, I think, so just not enough yeah, films that, are like that is a, a big selling point now. <laughs> yeah, just not enough films are that length nowadays that you can sit down and be done and wrapped up between deciding what you want to watch and getting out and finished within less than two hours. Um so yeah, yeah. Uh hundred percent agree. That's a it's a, a great film. I think I rewatched it fairly recently actually as well, but I could still rewatch it again tomorrow, you know, if I wanted to. It's a brilliant film yeah and the other great thing is that i think i could pick any of the the evil dead films well apart from the the newest one <laughs> and, and they would all feature in this list because all of the films in the franchise are just brilliant yeah yeah for, uh, yeah i suppose that's true actually apart from apart from the most recent one they are all a form of tourism i suppose yeah, I, I, I don't know if going to medieval England counts as travel necessarily, but uh, or a time travel, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah, we'll we'll count it. But yeah, I I absolutely love love Evil Dead. I love everything about everything about it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I just think it's just one of when when I stumbled across it and I was able to to be allowed to put it in this list. There, there was no way that it was going anywhere but number one, but only because I wasn't able to talk. I wasn't able allowed to put in Bruges in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, and I do think Evil Dead Two does kind of marry up the like the first one is a little bit more leans into the horror, and the third one kind of leans a little bit more into the comedy. And this one just treads that line perfectly, I think, for me. Yeah, it lands. I think Evil Dead Two is is like the distillation of the franchise as a whole. 
Uh, but, you know, all the films and all the, all the other material, the video games and the, the TV series, they've all sort of played around on that spectrum. Uh, but Evil Dead 2 is the one that really just, got, it really like crystallizes everything that Evil Dead has been about since, you know, they've, they've all, every piece of media that they've put out is always related back to Evil Dead 2 rather than like the first one, really. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I agree 100% on that one. Um, and that leaves kind of another odd segue, I guess I've got on this one, but in the opposite direction to the last one. Um, because this, for my number one, I picked uh, Before Sunrise, which is the the first of Richard Linklater's, effectively, is Before Trilogy. Um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as Jesse and Celine. Um, they meet up on a train bound for Vienna um, and decide to basically spend the night together wandering around the streets of Vienna. Uh, again, I think it's one of those um, kind of incredibly sort of beautiful uh, emotional films as well. And it's kind of has this... It's, it's been described as like the, the Gen X spirit effectively of like um, people just doing nothing but on film that, that Richard Linklater did quite well, but about you can sort of the way they see them falling in love over the course of the one night. Um, and then, you know, obviously they're bound to go their separate ways at the end of it because she's, he's got to get a flight back to America. I think it is. And well, Maybe I'm confusing the sequels. I can't remember, but uh, and she needs to go into Paris and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, that's that was that was mine and one. I don't know if you've seen that one. So this is yeah, it's one of my my shameful blank spots is the Before trilogy because uh, I I really love uh, Richard Linklater, uh, Boyhood, uh, Dazed and Confused, uh, two films I really love and. I think School of Rock is probably the film I've seen in the cinema more than any other. Uh, when it came out, I like it was sort of that time where we were able to sort of get the bus to, into town by ourselves as teenagers, and and like that was the only thing on the, in the cinema for ages. So we, that was all we ended up doing because there was nothing else to do. Uh, but yeah, right. I never never got to the Before trilogy, uh, which is something that. I've admonished myself for enough, and I really do need to fix. I mean, you're not alone. We've all we've all got those, uh, you know, ones that you go. How have I just never got around to watching this yeah. one, for example? Uh, but so yeah, we've all got those films, and I'm very similar with you on School of Rock, except for for me, that was. I, this might be a particularly like, particularly local thing. I don't know, but it got to like. So you get into the end of your um, school year, for example. And you've maybe sat your exams already, but you've still got a couple of weeks left. And rather than actually teaching you anything, teachers would just wheel in a TV on like a on a sort of a stand or anything that was on these. And inevitably, it would almost certainly end up being School of Rock that we got shown. So I reckon I've seen that film well into the like 20, 30 times. Yeah, we, we had uh, teachers specific films for hours. Oh, okay. When they did that, uh, so we we ended up seeing like the first half of like a few different films. Uh, I don't think we ever got through like a whole film. Yeah, usually it'd just be the hour block, wouldn't it? So yeah, yeah. We we had a science teacher that always chose the day after tomorrow. Oh uh, yeah, I do remember seeing that one a lot as well. Might mention it. I think my geography teacher always put Zoolander on, which was more welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We never got like I don't think we ever got through a whole film. We always just got the uh, like the first however long a lesson was worth of a film. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I'm just thinking about it now as well. So uh, you mentioned about uh, the you know the the shameful list of films that you've never seen. I think Days and Confused is on that list for me as well. So. Well, at least we, we've got one each from him then. Exactly, yeah. We've both got a link later on the, on our list there, at least. So, but, uh, uh, yeah, I I recommend Days and Confused. I really I really love it. I think that's one of those uh, films for me that was when I, when I kind of began to understand what indie cinema was. 
uh, it, it came through it and it got put on to me from, from Kevin Smith films because he, he basically just used the same cast as each other in those times. Um, I think Dazed and Confused will, will probably go down in history more than <laughs> most of Kevin Smith's work, except maybe Clerks. Um, yeah, I don't know. You, you, you may be talking to the wrong person for that because I'm also no, I, I absolutely Kevin love Smith Kevin fan. Smith. Yeah. <laughs> I, I adore him. Uh, but I think part of part of adoring Kevin Smith is knowing that his films are mostly crap but have charm to a very specific type of person. I like to use the word limited. <laughs> no, I, yes. I, I just love the fact that he's a guy who just goes out and just does just does what he wants for fun. You know, puts his kid in everything just because he wants to work with his kid, and he's like, he just seems like a very lovely guy. So I'll, I'll never have a bad word to say about him. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent on that one. Um, and like you say, to kind of link it back. Obviously, that Kevin Smith probably uh, put me onto Richard Linklater as well because Kevin Smith always tells a story about going to see um, Slacker at the cinema and sort of his realization of going. Oh, that's a film, is it? Because I can do that. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I remember him saying something similar about Reservoir Dogs as well. Uh, would make probably sense. Probably a yeah. film that that I would have discovered around the same time too. Uh, and yeah, and I, I think just think that time where I was sort of thirteen through seventeen, just so many films that just left a massive imprint on me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're all the, the they're all the, the indie films from the time because like the I think like the the big studio stuff just hasn't resonated with me the same way that those those films did. Yeah, I think I probably with you as well on that one hundred percent. Um so yeah um that that kind of uh, rounds out our lists. Um, uh, this is the bit where you can uh, you can plug your your social media or your show itself. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I said earlier we do a, a podcast with Mark from uh, the RoboCop episode. Uh, we do it every week called Creative Psychopaths, and it's a horror movie podcast where we uh, we, we make horror sandwiches. So we, we'll have uh, a movie of the week, and uh, that that'll be a fill in with slices of bread that more often than not we'll we'll have a guest on asking questions but if we, we don't have a guest we'll have your know, ruminations on random things usually we, i think we've done uh, you know what's coming up that we want to see but all the way through to what horror movies should be made out of lego so it's a it's a mixed bag uh, for that sort of stuff, but it's, you know it's always a good time, and and we love having guests. So anyone who wants to, uh, you know, join us, you, you don't need to to have any sort of experience or uh, even personality because we get away with it fine. <laughs> um, just come on and and we'll chat horror films and we'll ask you a few questions, talk about a movie, and it'll be a real good time. Yeah, I will say it. it uh, it's, it's such a good idea as well. I think really that you've got going there. So uh, yeah, yeah, the format works, but sometimes it's really hard having to think of two extra things to talk about on top of a film. Fair, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> we we always manage. We always somehow get cobble something together. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We do enjoy it. Ah, oh, very good. Um, well, like I say, thanks for coming on, Matthew. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, for everyone else, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.